Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, July 20th. Today we have an interview with Massimo Marinelli. Uh, kind of a unique interview for what we traditionally do. So it's less about public market equities. Uh, Massimo is an executive board member for Acer Ventures, which is, I believe, uh, well, it's an investment firm in London. I think they're headquartered there. Uh, and they own Leeds United. So if you're interested in soccer, uh, that might interest you. I think they're also a part owner of the 49ers. So we talk about that. Uh, what, what were your favorite parts about the interview? Mm, I was trying to prime for information about Formula One because I know that investing in that, people get excited about that as well. Because um, he did, I believe, well, was it? It was he prior, had a, in a prior life. Yeah, in his investment banking, I think he talks about this, he did some transactions or helped in some transactions for them. Yeah, I mean, I was just interested on how they formulate the deals with the soccer clubs and how that works in relationship to the owners and the general managers and stuff like that. Well, they are the owners, but like say there's a controlling shareholder or something, right. how they have to negotiate with them. It's all a bit complicated and it is a bit of a black box. He can't share everything. Right. Uh, but I know people are interested in that. So learned, you know, learned a lot about uh, the sports investing landscape, which is a really unique industry. Yep. And then we have our show notes on the back and some acquisitions, some mergers, some deals to talk about. So we'll get into those. But before we get to that. Well, we don't want to give a teaser, a little teaser. Oh, okay. What are you talking about? Uh, UMG deal was squashed. Universal the, Music Group. People, yeah. So Universal Music Group got Spackman or whatever they're trying to say. Got uh, spacked. Yeah, I know. Spacked. But spacked. People whatever. got, yeah. But it's Bill Ackman. So they're yeah. like, the deal got Whatever. Uh, but then uh, Square is also apparently trying to get into a Bitcoin DeFi network. We're going to talk about that. Crypto, exciting as always. What about you? Uh, I've got Zoom. They acquired Five Nine. It's kind of a biz- it's a bigger business than I thought it was, uh, and it's a bit of a premium. So we'll talk about that. And then I also have a story from the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about our favorite person, Adam Newman, with cult- WeWork. The cult of We looks good. I'm gonna have to download it. Yeah, and. Before we get to that, we got to talk about our friends, Seven Investing. I tweet, yeah, I tweeted this weekend. I loved Matt and Dan's new write-ups. I learned Dance, a ton Dance. about two specific companies. Oh, can't right. give them away. Can't give them away, obviously. But I took the time to read their past write-ups. They, I mean, those those two companies specifically are kind of in our wheelhouse a bit, mm. or something we can understand. But there's a lot of stuff else on there as well. Dan's is interesting. Dan's picks are always right under your nose, like you. Yeah. You know, you know them. You just don't think about it, and mm-hmm. usually that leads to good returns. So, uh, yeah, feel free to sign up. Uh, it's code CCM. Go over there, look at their recs. Get ten dollars off. That's right. Uh, without further ado, here's your interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, today we are welcomed by Massimo Marinelli. I believe I'm saying that right, pronouncing it right. Uh, he's an executive board member for Acer Ventures. Uh, this is a conversation where we're going to talk about sports. Sports investing. Sports investing, which is a conversation we really haven't had. But before we get into that, kind of background for you, Massimo, how did you, what interest you, interested you in the world of finance? Kind of give us some of the highlights of your career and then what led you to Acer? Sure. Thank you for uh, having me and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've been in, uh, in finance since I left college, basically. I started uh, first as an intern with uh, UBS in uh, whew, a few years ago, o- over, over 20 years ago now. And I spent 15, 16 years in investment banking. I was an M&A banker focused on uh, media, sports and uh, dig- digital media. I did that between London and New York. And uh, from there, you know, after so many times I did a, you know, a lot of transactions in the sports, I did work, I led transactions for the likes of Formula One, MotoGP, um, Viacom, Sky, you know, so lots of, uh, lots of big corporates, but I also sold uh, the previous business of the founders of Ace Ventures, 
And that's how I got involved with Ace Adventures, which is obviously an investor in a sports investing, as you just mentioned. And uh, I guess for anyone that's unfamiliar, what's sort of the Acer Ventures strategy? Who are you guys? And then are you guys focused on a certain asset class or is anything fair game? Well, look, I mean, uh, we are a sports, media and entertainment focused business. Okay. We definitely, you know, like those sectors and that's what we, we focus on. We are, you know, we look, we consider ourselves an investment platform that wants to, you know, bring together, you know, management expertise and capital. You know, we have some capital is the capital of the entrepreneur, which we invest, but we're also looking to diversify that with third party capital. And that's why in some of the investments that we have, we have minority investors in it. Or in some cases, you know, we invest in other people's businesses. We're pretty stage agnostic. We're not a venture capital or a private equity firm from that perspective. We don't necessarily have the criteria, you know, that a VC might have or that a PE might have. But we we tend to focus very much on these on these sectors. Now, is there any difficulty with? I know sports sometimes. You know, there's um, certain people have ownership and they might not want to give up any rights. Is there any difficulty with getting these outside stakes? Because a lot of times these are kind of precious assets, at least with sports teams. Um, has Is it a lot different than say, just taking a stake in a traditional business? Then, you know, it's uh, it's a bit different, let's say in Europe. In, in the US, obviously there are a lot of restrictions and sometimes, you know, you're not necessarily able to acquire easily a minority stake in a football club. Here, I wouldn't say that it's easy, but, you know, they tend to be more privately held company without, you know, sort of restrictions from uh, the NFL, MLB or criteria set by third party. There are, there are, you know, some criteria that's particularly for the big clubs you need to respect. You know, you have a director's test that you have to go through uh, in terms of, you know, being uh, and obviously somebody that brings good capital in, you know, for example, th- things like that. But, uh, you know, if you, if you had the capital to acquire a football club and you are, you know, a credible party, you will be able to do so. In Europe, I think it's a bit, it's a bit easier from that perspective. The question is, you know, finding the right opportunity and uh, having the capabilities to do it. Perhaps that's, that's not as easy to come by. Right. Okay. And we'll get into what makes it good, you know, uh, <laughs> steward, I guess, uh, of, of a sports club. Yeah. And so I guess that leads into our next kind of segment, which is that you guys have an investment in Leeds United. So I guess what led you guys to that? Um, and so what was sort of the thinking behind that deal? Yeah. Look, I mean, Andrea has always been in, uh, on and around football. So obviously it's, it's a space that we knew a lot. His past, you know, he was a, a sports media rights executive. He built a very successful sport, sports media rights agency. And by definition, you know, being football, you know, outside of the US, obviously the biggest sport, you know, was very focused on, on football. And when the business was sold, you know, it, you know, it definitely started to look at a potentially, you know, buying a football club. Initially, he looked uh, in other countries in Europe, like Italy, France, Spain, and, uh, and then, you know, he had a, a, a you know, what he, I think he defined a chance encounter with Kenny Dargish, who is, you know, very well-known personality in, uh, in football in, in England, obviously. And, uh, you know, Kenny mentioned how Leeds United was a sleeping giant and a great opportunity, something that could come back to, you know, the, the former glory and it was really an underdeveloped, underutilized property. And uh, I think that's what uh, instigated the interest and Andrea had a first meeting and uh, first visit in, you know, the training ground in Thor Park and really fell in love with the club. Uh, the club happened to be, op- to be owned by another Italian soccer investor, f- football investor. And I guess the rest is, is history. And uh, I, I guess, have you always had sort of a fa- like an interest in soccer or is that more football, we are. football. Well, look, I mean, I, I, as, as I'm sure you can hear, I'm Italian, so you know, obviously, <laughs> so it's been a good week. It's a good week, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, besides, besides being a good week, you know, definitely, definitely, you know, it's uh, it's you know, the, the home sport, so I think it's very difficult to find an Italian boy that doesn't like Italian, not that I'm, not that I'm a boy anymore, but when I was a boy, I used to play football and you know, follow football a lot, so yeah, and what. Also, 
What uh? So from uh, from the financial side, what do you guys contribute to the football club? Um, you know what? I guess Andreas and the team. What are they doing? And then maybe if you could, how how do the how does this business work? I think a lot of listeners understand what sports teams are. I mean, th- those are pretty easy to understand. Everyone's fans of one, but mm-hmm. you know how do they how do they actually make money? Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're hitting the nail in the head, right? Because at the end of the day, you're looking at a property that is a bit different from some of the other investments you might make. A sports club, you know, where a football or other sports really has two very distinct areas. One is the sports side, you know, you need, you have the team, how it performs, how you manage that team, how you make sure it's successful on the pitch. And on the other side, you have the business side, which is more, you know, how you can make sure you got the wherewithal, the means to support that sporting side. Um, so for, from that perspective, you know, I definitely have a more familiarity and understanding of the business side and the football side. You know, there is a, you know, awful lot of things that, uh, you know, even, even as a, as a fan, you know, you don't really understand or, well, you might think you do, but you know, it's, it's really, you know, different, different, you know, I certainly, you know, wouldn't be able to have a, a proper discussion with Victor Orta, the director of football of Leeds United, he probably, you know, immediately understand you know the difference between somebody that speaks business sports versus somebody that, that speaks you know football sports i'd say that um you know on our side you know as acer itself you know we definitely you know trying to support them very much on the business side so you know how you grow the commercial revenues how you make sure that uh, you know the the numbers are under control focus on the investments etc i think you mentioned you know how other others how the revenue side works and ultimately you know, as uh, uh, I may have mentioned before, you know, I was very much focused on media when I was an investment banker and in media, you know, we also used to cover sports. The reason for it is that one of the main reasons of uh, um, revenues for sports properties are media rights. And so it was very much aligned to it. Um, so when you look at the revenue base of a football club, you know, it's media rights that typically you might exploit through league deals. Um, you then have uh, events revenues, you know, ticketing. The fact obviously you, you know, pre-COVID at least were able to, but from next season, you know, fingers crossed, we should be able to again, uh, you know, have uh, basically people in, in the stadium. And then you have other commercial type revenues, sponsorship and, and the likes. Those are, you know, the main three, you know, revenue streams of a, of a football club. As far as the like actual investment process is, is it just one ownership group or is it, is the ownership of the team divided into a bunch of different investment, I guess, or just people. Yeah. Different people. Or does it kind of vary by club? Yeah. It's, it's different, different by club I mean, for sure. In our case, you know, we, we close the acquisitions as is. So Azer initially was a hundred percent investor in Leeds United, but then we signed a partnership with the 49ers, the or 49ers enterprises, a, you know, obviously an entity associated with the family that controls uh, the NFL team. And uh, they now are minority shareholders in the club. They, they own 37% of, of the club and we did that across two transactions. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're in Seattle, so we're kind of the, the rivals of the 49ers, but do we want to talk about that a bit at all, Ryan? Do we yeah, let's do, do that on the, I guess, on after the, the break. But okay. I I guess on the back end of that investment, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think, like, how does someone that's investing in a sports team recoup their investment? Is there a cash payout? Like, do you get paid cash during the year, or is it only once you've sold that position? Yeah, I mean, I think it tends to be more the latter. I mean, these tend to be assets that uh, build a lot of equity value and whatever you monetize over time. Uh, the, you know, I, I would say historically, uh, you haven't seen a lot of uh, cash flow generation in, uh, in club or ca- cash flow yielding in Europe. But I think as part of the professionalization that you are seeing through the space, that, that will improve. It also, you know, it's down to this, the stage the club is at, right? whether it's a club that is investing to get promoted, like we were uh, two seasons ago, or whether it's a club that, uh, you know, is obviously already the benefits and is, you know, continuously winning. But generally speaking, you know, we, we definitely focus on building asset value 
rather than cash flow generation at this stage. And okay. Does Acer treat, I guess, the leads investment like a passive investment, or is there more of a hands-on approach? I know you said Andrea is involved. Uh, so I guess, how do you balance that? Well, I mean, Acer is very much an active investor. We are we are not just you know passengers on, on any of the investments that we make. In fact, we don't make investments unless we got something to to add. Really. And uh, you know, I think that's a key key point in terms of our investment strategies about the fact that uh, we are not just provider of capital, and we're not just a you know an investor manager you know with some expertise in a subsector, but Azer is comprised by people that have got real expertise in the sector, starting from Andrea and his past, as I mentioned, successful entrepreneur in, uh, in sports media rights, and now obviously in broadcasting and, and football, uh, but also other members of the management team, like Mark Watson, they used to run BT Sports and launch the BT television services. BT is the, you know, the AT&T of Italy, oh, well, sorry, United Kingdom, rather, um, to be clear. Uh, or Graham uh, Wallace uh, used to be chief financial officer at Man City, and before that, uh, you know, long experience in Viacom, just to name a few. So we really are a management team that brings capabilities to the investments that, that you make. Okay, and then one more uh, from from the business side. What's a mistake someone can make in you know that you don't have to give any examples or anything like that? But if someone's investing in a sports club, you know. I, I guess winning a winning team solves everything, but what from the business side, what's a mistake that some investor can make when, you know, underwriting a investment in a sports team and what could go wrong? Well, I think, I think it's always uh, easy to overestimate the commercial potential of a, of a franchise in the short term. You know, I think you need to be mindful that, uh, you know, if you have a, something that, you know, you're just getting out of a, bad moment or bad management or whatever is not going to be able to suddenly, you know, multiply revenues like that. You know, it's possible over time, but it, it, it takes some time. So I guess it's how to manage that bridge between, you know, being unsuccessful and being successful. Okay. I think we're going to hit a quick break, but on the second half, we'll talk more about your guys' sports media assets. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. Okay, welcome back in. We want to hit on, because you guys have a few more assets and some of it's in sports and media. So... I guess before we get into the specific properties that you guys have, how has the sports media landscape changed uh, in your view amidst COVID and then how have viewership habits been changing in general? Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of uh, changes in the, in the sports media landscape that we had to you know, really address and, and live with. Uh, the impact of COVID I think has been uh, evident to everybody in terms of uh, you know, sometimes the inability just of having uh, having games going on, which was clearly, you know, pretty pretty massive impact. But I think w- what it has done, it has accelerated some trends in terms of making people more comfortable with, uh, uh, you know, the, the ability to just rely on mobile phones and perhaps, you know, more video calls and things like that. And I think that has also had, a, had an impact on uh, how people will want to consume, consume media. Uh, and utilize technology for that. So for example, that's, that's the reason why we, we launched last year live now, which is a pay-per-view business focused on live events, you know, which uh, we're clearly not available to enjoy, you know, live in, uh, you know, if it was a concert in an arena or whatever, but, you know, we produce concerts and made them available online. 
Uh, and also, you know, we think it's a, it's a good innovative solution in terms of allowing people to just buy events on the spot, on the go, perhaps from, you know, in the future of social media rather than subscribing to this or that, you know, cable or cellular provider. What, uh, what happened to viewership? Did it boost during COVID? Did it like increase with everyone locked in or was it kind of flat? The, no, no, the audiences were good. Obviously, you know, we had the issue of not having games at times. So we had to navigate through that. But I, we were lucky enough, if I'm not mistaken, with 11 Sports to be one of the first, uh, the first broadcaster to have some live events. We had some baseball in Taiwan that came, that came back. I think it was the first real, you know, let's say, relatively major sports event that came back. And we start getting calls from every broadcaster in the world, basically, to, you know, get access to that content because everybody was craving some sort of live sports. Interesting. All right. And then what, uh, I guess, you know, if my notes were right here, you guys either own or have a stake in the broadcaster 11 sports. That's a, at least in the United States, I assume it's like that in Europe and other places around the world as well. There's a ton of, I wouldn't call it uncertainty, but there's a lot of things up in the air of where a lot of the broadcasting rights are going to land. We've seen in the United States, at least, and, and I guess in Europe as well, you know, Amazon and other mm-hmm. you know platforms like that, buying up rights. We had that for the NFL here. How do you guys look at that and what are, what's your strategy for the, uh, you know, eventual movement of all these broadcasting rights to, you know, online platforms? So Eleven is a business that, that was founded by Acer. Okay. So you know, it was, uh, it was something that, uh, you know, was, uh, again, born out of an idea of Andrea, given his expertise in, in the space. We are the majority shareholder. But we do have minority shareholders, you know, which are, you know, very, uh, very re- reputable and, and big, big companies in the, in, in, the, in the world of sports and media and all recognized investors like Sapphire, uh, uh, the Sapphire Capital, which you, you might know, they're not based, not far from you guys originally, or um, uh, NBC via Comcast or Liberty Global Ventures. Uh, Snap is a minority shareholder, or Liz Murdoch, you know, to, to name to name a few. So obviously, you know, we have built a business that has got some uh, some recognition now in real scale. You know, we got over three hundred million dollars of revenues for the year that just closed, uh, pro forma for the acquisitions that we just closed. And uh, I think the secret to have a successful business like that is to be more in control of your destiny, really. So you know, you mentioned yes, buying rights, but not just focus on. Uh, the live rights is also, you know, what other sort of, uh, you know, propositions you can offer both to, to the fans and, and to the partners that, that you have, you know, the, the, the rights holders. So that's why, you know, we acquired and build new capabilities, whether it's with the acquisitions of Maikujo we did last year, now 11sports.com, or with Whistle, which is uh, you know, the business that we originally invested in in the U.S., a few years ago and as, as is adventures and then was ultimately acquired by 11 because I think that allows to offer more original content that is attractive to younger demographics as well as uh, you know additional services potentially to the rights holders would there be this is kind of a random question but would there be any benefits to taking any of your assets public I, I know it, it might be hard, I guess, with a sports team, although I've seen Man United, I think it's publicly traded. Man U and yeah, a few other. A few out there for sure. Yeah. Would there be any benefits to that? Um, I think, you know, particularly with the SPAC craze that you guys, I'm sure, have debated in, in the past, um, you can imagine that, you know, there is uh, definitely a lot of focus on sports, right, as well. I mean, that's also well known. There are, I think, you know, tens of sparks folks on, on the space. So obviously, you know, we, we have to consider that as, uh, as options, you know, it's also part of a job of an investor to look at every option. Uh, as part of it, you know, you're right, there is a, a lot more examples of people, sorry, of companies rather in the, in the media and media sports space listed than, uh, than clubs. Uh, I think, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely an area that we would need to, to consider. I mean, on the, on the on the media side, I think it's easier to get comfortable with the diversification 
on the on the sporting side, you know, you just you know, because you mentioned very very big club, uh, you know, I guess somebody also needs to consider how to build that uh, that position as a one single club. Right. And do you, I guess, do you want to talk about the U.S. operations? What all do you guys own as far as uh, investments over here? Yeah, obviously, we are very active in the U.S., whether it's through our, you know, partnerships that I mentioned with the, with the 49ers already, but also, you know, direct investments that we have made. In the past, I, I, I said, you know, we, we invest in this business called Team Whistle that was then bought by Eleven Sports. So that was our first big investment in the U.S. But we also are a an investor in a company called Sport Data Labs, that is a software as a survey proposition focusing on uh, um, collecting da- human data from athletes. Oh, cool! Uh, nice. Yeah. So that's uh, that's uh, you know another business we're invested in, and also Live Now is very active in the, in the United States. So definitely, you know, we we unfortunately haven't been spending physically as much time as uh, we would have liked in the US. We used to come very regularly, obviously with COVID. You know, I'm based in London, it's been a bit more difficult, <laughs> but I hope that will change soon. But we definitely see the U.S. as an important part of our investment and operations. So w- with, you know, stuff in, I guess it's in any area, do, do you think the best way to, um, I don't know if it's just revenue maximization or just the ability to get the most from your avid watchers, do you think the best way to do that is to go after some, you know, niche subscription services, kind of like a lot of people have been going after, or do you think just add su- the ad supported model is better? Because it seems like there's a lot of avenues that you can go about it once a lot of these rights get debundled from, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, what's what, what I'm missing, the, the cable bundles. I mean, at the end of the day, it's uh, content and, uh, you know, rich dependent in a sense, right? I mean, there are some content that can definitely work well with niche subscriptions and should definitely be pursued. I think it can also be always an uh, additive strategy for content that might be big in certain countries or in certain areas, but not in others because, you know, people are more mobile and there will be, you know, with somebody out there that might want to be willing to pay to get access to original content some, somewhere. Um, and then on uh, advertising versus pay, you know, obviously there are e- examples of uh, successful businesses with both strategies. So it's about, you know, how you, how you make sure that, you know, you have the right reach to either create the right base subscription model or generate the right advertising bundle. So I don't, I don't think it's a one size fits all. And you said mobile viewership is growing a lot. How are you guys leveraging that within your assets? Is it... Uh, it sounds like Live Now has an app. Am I getting that right? Yeah, Live Now has an app. Also, Eleven in the, the major markets obviously has an app, and you know, make make sure that people can use them as as well as being available online. You know, in some markets we only operate in Italy, and in Japan we only operate over the top. So there are definitely there are definitely reasons to make sure that uh, you know you you have to pursue that mobile strategy. Uh, and I think, you know, there is, again, some content that works better on mobile than other, but I guess overall with 5G and all the improvements in technology will continue to be an important component of our uh, viewership. Right. I guess one, this is a uh, switching a tiny bit, but you mentioned formula one. I don't know if you followed it for the last, uh, or if you're a fan at all, but if you, there's a lot of people, I guess, in the U.S. now after the Netflix documentary that are fans of Formula One. I'm fans myself. How do, how does that business work at all? If you if you can share that, uh, and if not, we can go to another question. How how does it work? You mean like how how does that business how how's the how does the league work at all? I get you know you mentioned before that you did some yeah stuff look, with Formula One yeah absolutely absolutely look I mean. I I did a lot of work with Formula One when it was under the ownership of CVC, the private cap, the private uh, the private equity firm. Uh, since then, has been sold to Liberty Media. So obviously, it's new ownership. I haven't been as close to the business performance as it was, but the business, you know, it's uh, it's a great business. You know, they definitely have a you know good setup with a league that controls you know the revenue streams and distributes them to the team by way of price money. 
the revenue model is very similar to a club in a sense that you know there are obviously commercial revenues ticketing revenues in that case media revenues and also you know host revenues so you know if you want to host a race you also have to have to pay you know you could argue it's part of the much world in football you would call match day experience uh you know it's uh obviously a great sport some I'm pleased to hear that they managed to, you know, make additional inroads in the U.S. Because definitely that was part of the strategy at the time when I when I was working with CBC. Right. It's, yeah, it's funny watching everyone become Formula One fans. I'm, yeah, I'm an expert now after watching ten episodes. Yeah. But so <laughs> if a team opens up, uh, we can say you don't have to answer this, but Acer, you know, they could be coming <laughs> in, maybe making a little. Uh, I know there's only ten teams and there, there's a limited supply, but that seems like one of the best uh, sports assets, at least in the world. Yes, yes. No, they've, been, uh, they've been definitely, you know, doing a, doing a great job with Formula One. There is also, you know, some uh, some new sports focused on uh, electric cars. So there is Formula E as well. Oh. That, uh, you know, there are, there are races focused on cars that are more, you know, race racing cars, but only electric. And uh, recently there has also been a launch of Extreme E, which is more of a race between, you know, kind of a, uh, a, let's say an SUV type car in a very remote location, again, only electric. So, you know, with the, with the move towards, you know, new technologies for, for engine motors, you know, it would be quite interesting to see how that develops. But, you know, Formula One cars, they already are hybrid, right? right? They're not, they're not, you know, as they used to be just petrol cars. Petrol engine. What a. It hasn't been for a long time. I mean, it's probably over 10 years now. What impact do you think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brett, but it sounds like they're putting like a budget across the league, sort of like a salary cap. Am I, That's, is, yeah, yeah. Do you think that would benefit the league at large? or? So there is no such thing as a salary cap in, at the moment in, uh, you know, in, in the Premier League, which is where it's raised. Uh, there are some uh, restrictions in terms of uh, financial fair play. So there are some restrictions in terms of uh, how much money you can invest into the club or you can lose, have a club lose. So basically, you know, it's sort of a element of controlling the fact that, you know, you can't just keep spending if you don't have the revenues to support that spending. So you, know, you, can, only, you can only lose a certain amount of money each, each year, let's say, controlled over a three-year period. Uh, there have been, you know, noises in the past around salary caps. So, for example, I think the league before, below the Premier League in, in, in England considered that last year, but ultimately wasn't approved. Would it be would it be a good change? Uh, look, I mean, the key point here is that uh, I think it's important to consider that clubs need to become sustainable. You know, that's for the good of everybody in the sports. Nobody wants to see a club going bust. So, hopefully, you know, that's... Uh, that's going to be achieved somehow. Could a salary cap being a, a route for it? Maybe, but obviously it has to be looked at in the context of what else is being done to preserve, you know, competitiveness and uh, ultimately, you know, an exciting uh, competition, right? Right. And I guess I have, I have one last one kind of along those lines. Um, so as the clubs, I, I guess I'm just assuming this, but you have a revenue share, um, across, you know, all the clubs in the certain leagues as investors or anyone on the business side, are you working with all the media rights? Um, sorry, the media, or there are the people that broadcast stuff. So I guess, for example, if say you were the, the league was doing a negotiation in the United States with, you know, ESPN, NBC or whoever, are you working on that at all? Uh, because I know that can have a big impact on uh, annual revenues for clubs. Yeah. So there are some rights that are centralized. And so it's the league that monetize those for everybody. The most obvious ones are indeed the um, uh, TV rights or the broadcasting rights. I say TV, but that's very old school. Obviously, they're also distributed over the top. Um, but that's, I think, how still everybody calls them. And then there are some rights that instead are monetized club by club. So sure, sponsorship. It's another obvious example. So for us, you know, it's, it's uh, of course, you know, very much involvement on the ones that we can monetize individually for the club versus the ones that we monetize. All right. That makes, that makes sense. Oh, I have, I have one last question too. Do you have any take on the 
European Super League. Oh, that was kind of <laughs> relevant more a month ago. But what was the incentive there from the clubs? And then, uh, if, if I'm if I remember correctly, Leeds was the team that had the shirts on that. I'm blanking on what it yeah, said. But. Yeah, if you want, we can send you one. You know, yeah. <laughs> we're all game. We're game. <laughs> that, you know, the you know, football is for the fans. That's exactly what we said. I mean, uh, but that's that's indeed the point. I mean, I, I think the clubs that subscribe to it, they had in the press release that they felt that you know, well, for a start, you know, they were obviously looking to get more cash in after COVID. You know, they had significant losses, and, and of course, if you are a big club and you can't host 20 games through the season, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be more, um, you know, you're going to lose more revenues than a small club, right? That has got five people going through the gates. I, I'm not talking about my club, I'm, our club, I'm just saying in general, right? Obviously, the bigger you are, the more, the more revenues you lose from uh, uh, loss of ticketing. I, I'd say, you know, the, the overall, the overall uh, structure, the overall thought process around that was really, uh, mind-blowingly badly executed, you know, and that's why he ended so so quickly. Um, it's uh, it's definitely you know an area that I think people will need to just be mindful of. You don't want something like this to you know happen in that in that shape or form without being without being really discussed. Uh, I think you know there are great competitions already happening. Uh, to the extent that people are looking at ways to make the sports industry more sustainable, let's talk about it, right? I mean, as I was saying before, by any means, it's important that the sports sector remains more sustainable. But, uh, you know, doing a private club, you know, probably, you know, wasn't well received by the fans. And ultimately, you know, without fans, there is no there is no successful sports team. And you, you said it was poorly executed. I think that was kind of the view from the rest of the world as well. What would you... Or what do you think they should have done different in trying that strategy? I mean, obviously we weren't part of it. So, you know, we definitely don't know all the things that they've done or they may have done, not done. But just looking at it from, from outside, I was, uh, you know, I guess surprised that there was no clear, no clear management structure that was presented, you know, no, no spokesperson, you know, that was identified. So, you know, you kind of have a few clubs speaking rather than, one central representative, I guess, uh, you know, it's, look, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to mention, but I think most importantly, perhaps was the lack of inclusion of the rest of the football uh, world. Right. I think it really looked like, you know, it was, a uh, you know, six clubs against, was it six, right? Or yeah, six like or that. eight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, six, initially six clubs against the rest of the world. Right? So that was it. You know, probably not the way, you know, you expect uh, what is still, you know, a sporting war to, to be, to be, you know, to be the way you start something new, right? You probably want to make sure that, you know, there is a, obviously there are regulators, there are a lot of other players in the space, you know, even politicians, I guess, you know, it was quite surprising, I guess, the political reactions was, was also bad and just wonder how, how did that happen? You know, it was... If it was such a big project that has secured potentially funding from big banks and the likes, you know, how, how did they just, you know, not uh, include the rest of, you know, this, the, the rest of the stakeholders? Right. right, right. It seems like, especially with sports assets, yeah. taking care of your fans and I guess the other stakeholders are really important for building a durable uh, franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a wrap up question. We asked this to all our guests. What is one piece of advice you have for anyone that's considering a career? And I guess your background's kind of in finance. So anyone considering a career in finance? Um, I think, I think it's very important to, you know, just, uh, first of all, you know, make sure that you, you look at why you might want to uh, get a career in finance. And, uh, and then, you know, just, uh, be very focused on, uh, securing an opportunity in it because there are opportunities, you know, your first one might not be necessarily the one, you know, you were wanting, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that's not, that's, this is probably for a reason, you know, if you keep focused on it, 
and you keep uh, you know being very um, you know motivated you can definitely you can definitely make it you know it's uh, it's a career that uh, it's you know obviously has a lot of has a lot of entry points so you know once you find the entry points you just need to be focused on executing it properly all right and uh, I, I mean that's all the questions we have where can any listeners find you if they want to follow you or anything like that you on Twitter or yeah, I'm on. I, I have. I actually, you know, good question. I don't use Twitter that much, but LinkedIn is good. Or you know, the yeah, that's that's probably the best platform. Yeah, I mean, I'm on Instagram, right. but I got. And it's a, Acer Acer Ventures. If anyone wants to check it out, it's A-S- cool. Uh, A S E R A S E R. The uh, I mean, that website's cool. Checking out all the stuff you guys uh, are a part of. So definitely. Yeah. Thank you, Massimo. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, and it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Thanks again to Massimo Marinelli for joining us. Uh, Next, we're going to talk about our stories for the week, and I'm going to kick things off. So Zoom acquired a company called Five9 this week, uh, or they are acquiring them, uh, and it's for $14.7 billion in an all-stock deal. Have you heard of this company before? I have not. I had seen it once. I don't think I've ever dug into what they did very much. I think it was during my summer at the Motley Fool that I came across them, but it was like on a screener. Uh, so didn't really do any digging. But the acquisition comes at a 13% premium to Five Nine's closing price on Friday. And it's the second biggest acquisition of the year for tech. I think the first one was Microsoft with Nuance Communications. Uh, but uh, – I'll kind of talk about what they do and then I'll dig into some of the financials. So they are a B2B software as a service provider, mostly for enterprises, and they're providing customer contact solutions. So uh, it's inbound, outbound, email. So you see the little chat box in the corner of some of the websites. They're kind of powering that. Uh, Automated voice, uh, like contact center, if you know what I mean. So like when you call and it receives any inbounds, and it can kind of process them. It's helping enterprise companies. Okay, so uh, a little bit of a Twilio competitor. They're kind of stepping towards yeah, that market a bit. I think they called themselves a customer contact as a service provider, nice. which I didn't even know that was a market. Nice. Um, but yeah, and they were, I guess, an $11 billion business before Zoom came in and acquired them. Um, and the stockholders will receive 0.5533 shares of Zoom for every 5.9 share they have. Uh, and Zoom's market cap for reference is just over $100 billion. So some of 5.9's financials, they did just under $500 million in trailing 12-month revenue. Uh, it's growing at about 40% year over year. COVID helped them out a lot. And then 92% of their revenue is recurring. I think something like 80% is from enterprise, which is what they were hoping for. And then 121% dollar-based retention rate revenue retention rate and then operating cash flow margins of like 15% free cash flow margins are about half that. And so zoom is buying five, nine at roughly 30 times sales. And they're growing at 40% year over year. Look, I mean, I, well, I here's okay. the thing. zoom is using their stock, which seems smart, right? So I, I was kind of like, okay, all stock deal. This is great. But if you're acquiring a company that's trading at 30 times sales, it feels kind of like a, a break even. You yeah. know, if someone's buying Zoom stock right now, they might be disappointed. But if you're a long-term shareholder, you know, you kind of got to like them using their stock price to their advantage. If the I'm pretty sure. So Eric Yen and the CEO of Five9 were both uh, employees at Cisco in a prior life. Okay. So they may have known each other before. Uh, and I question, I, I, I'm reluctant to question anything Eric Yen does if it's cloud-related because I'm sure he knows the market better than me. Um, and I also like him as an executive, but 30 times sales seems pretty steep. It feels late cycle for sure. Like cash flow margins have kind of stagnated over the last three years and I guess revenue has grown. So are you talking about for five, nine? Yeah. Um, I mean for reference, 
first of all, do you think the deal makes any sense? So Zoom trades, I ran some rough numbers in Zoom trades at roughly 60, 63 times trailing 12-month free cash flow. So I guess when you think about that as their valuation, using stock as currency is great. But as you said, it's kind of a kind yeah, of balances itself out when you yeah. acquire someone for 30 times yeah, sales. Yeah, you hope that you're using that expensive stock to acquire someone that's trading at, I don't know, 30 times cash flow or, or less or something like that or even more depressed. Yeah. I don't know. How does this work into their business, though? I don't know. I didn't think there's much opportunities for cross-selling. There's got – I mean, th- th- there's probably a claim that – you know, the, the, it's probably in the write-up. So if you're an investor in Zoom, you can easily see what they're claiming, but – I don't know. I mean, this makes sense for like Twilio, right? Twilio's kind of get into this, you know. But what, Zoom is more. I don't. Maybe they have a whole plan here for like. Okay, okay. Here's something that's coming to mind. What about like you're a business that subscribes to Zoom? You can also add on these features if you're a consumer-facing business. But I think that's a small part of Zoom. Zoom's market. just not consumer. Fa- it's like two different elements. Like it's one's not, yes. meant for like to interact with customers and then one's meant for like internal communication. Yeah, I just that, don't see the, I don't know. Yeah, the overlap of Zoom subscribers who would want 5.9 at all seems low, right? Well, I mean, Zoom subscribers applies to everyone. I That's imagine- what I'm saying. The overlap is pretty low. Like how many how many people or businesses even, even no consumers that use Zoom need it? And then there's probably only a few businesses, you know, I mean, it's not a few well, in like hundreds and maybe thousands of businesses that would want to use five, nine services that are also using Zoom. I mean, the overlap is probably high because everyone uses Zoom. So I imagine most of five, nine's customers also use Zoom. Yeah. But the yeah. chances for cross, I mean, I, I can't imagine there's that many five, nine customers that don't have their own, uh, don't either have Zoom or some, using some video chat, Google meet or whatever, whatever they are called now. At that point, it's already everyone yeah. already has some video chat. So I, I don't know. Well, uh, all these are we at peak Zoom? Michael I, Burry said it like six months ago. <laughs> I think I, he timed that perfectly right with the stock price. Yeah, I mean Zoom. Uh, I have no take on what Zoom's going to do, but the the deals. What are the three deals that have been tossed around? There was okay. Slack got acquired by Salesforce. That was expensive. This one got a. Uh, uh, shoot, what was it? What was it? Um, 30 times sales? Yeah, 30 times sales here. I don't know what Slack was. It was a little less than that, I think. Um, Nuance Communications, Microsoft? Yeah, but that's big tech. They got so much cash flow to cover that. But there was another one. Uh, like the all it? it could have been deals. a Twilio. It's one of those ones that Twilio has been kind of a serial acquirer. Those, the, the deal prices on these seem... Late cycle. They seem, yeah, I don't know. They seem aggressive. You know, the historically... A lot of times at the end of a, a cycle, and everyone says this, you can never predict what the end of a cycle is, but historically, when you look back, aggressive deals kind of signify the late stages of a bull market. Tag, uh, let's tag in Mark Cuban here. Yeah, uh, tag in that all Yahoo of, acquisition. All uh, the contributors, on anyone who works for CNBC now can thank themselves for the late acquisition, uh, late acquisition deals of the tech bubble but yeah i don't know this might not make sense to me but i don't really understand these businesses all that well and people you know they don't well with them let's get to your story okay so the umg deal is squash again like we mentioned at the start that is universal music group so pershing square tontine holdings whatever it's called ackman's bill ackman's uh spac was going to acquire umg but that deal was squashed by u.s regulators ackman will instead take a direct stake from his hedge fund instead about 5% or 10% of UMG, which is leaving the SPAC still searching for a deal. According to Ackman, the SEC raised a, quote, deal killer concerns with them last week, so the deal has to be stopped. These concerns could have been, uh, this is kind of from an article I was reading, it could have been restriction on foreign securities, holders who are using margin, because there's some complications with the deal. It was, we mentioned probably this at the time of the deal, it was the most insanely complicated deal there was like 20 steps you had to read. I don't know how many people actually understand what was going on. And then there also was problems with people who could have owned call options because they were trying to roll over something with the spec. I don't know. It's all over my head. But now Pershing Square Tontine is apparently going to go forward with a straightforward SPAC deal, according to Ackman. Um, IBO SPAC index, for reference, is down about 26% from the February peak. Excuse me, 26%, if you didn't hear that right. Is now the time, you think, uh, to start digging at a bit at these ruins? Or uh, what are your thoughts here? Well, I am hesitant to buy it. Maybe it's, maybe it's just the risk aversion in me talking. But buying any 
pre-merger SPAC at a premium seems yeah. like a risky strategy considering that it cannot go through um, unless well, you there's a floor. maybe there's hedge a, it in a way. There's a floor. Yeah. There's but floor you are literally saying – I mean let's say the merger opportunity is like 50 or 60% that it will happen. You're essentially saying like I will lose money if I'm wrong. Like if it doesn't uh, go through. Uh, no, I mean you just don't get any returns because you just get the cash returned. I mean there could be – But doesn't it go back to – down to ten dollars a share. Yeah, if you're buying it, uh, yes. That's I why I say at a premium. Assuming, if you're okay, I, I didn't hear that. Yeah, assuming yeah, if you're buying it above that ten dollars share or whatever the baseline is, yeah. I mean, there's probably a way to hedge that, but yeah, I don't. I don't. Why not just wait until post merger? I guess is what I would say. There's got to be some. If, yeah. if, if things continue to fall, there's got to be some post-merger opportunities here because if hundreds of companies are going to start merging over the next year or so, there's got to be at least a few out there that you can understand and like. Yeah, I saw – I mean there are some – it's kind of like a red – or I guess a yellow flag for me, uh, companies that chose to go public via a SPAC. And if they didn't need it. Yeah, but there are definitely some gems. I'm guessing maybe 3%. Of the SPACs that have happened are going to be thriving businesses in the public markets. Yeah. Or, or good. Yeah. I mean, stock returns. Stock returns. You know, yeah. more than 3% will be viable businesses, but the aggressive valuations. And if valuations were so aggressive, if the, and I guess not really valuations, if the multiples were so aggressive, a 26% downtick isn't much, you know, you know what I mean? On some of these that were trading at 100 times sales or whatever. Yeah. So. I don't know. Yeah, that's all I have for that. Pretty quick. But. Yeah, just wait until post merger. Wait till post merger, unless you have some hedging strategy, or if, if it's at a discount, maybe. But a pre merger premium, you yeah. are you you could definitely lose money. That's true that, because you're hedging it on a binary event. Yeah, yeah, that is true. All right. Um, my next story, it's called The We That Didn't Work. So an article came out in the Wall Street Journal this Saturday uh, talking about some of the fun stories of WeWork, our favorite company. And I think that I believe the title of it was The We That Didn't Work. So I'm well, kind of stealing there, that from them. There's infinite puns you can make in titles with WeWork. So it, that, that's, that'll never end. Yeah, and it it's worth the read for anyone that has access to the journal. Uh, uh, their Saturday editions are always the best anyways. So just... If you're going to subscribe, maybe just go Saturday editions. But after they talked about some of the stuff between Masa Sun and Adam Newman, so I'll dig into it. They said, after several early funding rounds, uh, Masa Sun and Adam Newman were apparently discussing a new deal that would include Masa Sun writing a $20 billion check to the company. Uh, they'd already funded them with $4 billion. So this was, I believe, the biggest private funding round that would have happened ever it would have been a majority stake in the company i should hope uh but if you've seen the documentary the WeWork documentary on hulu you knew exactly how this money would have been spent uh plenty of music festivals and a lot of alcohol that they corporate bloat i think we said this before too that the guy just needed to spend a few years at like a state school and we work would have never happened yeah that's probably true like if he just got his party and out earlier. Uh, but there are some good quotes too. And then apparently as they were discussing it, Masasan pulled out his iPad and started jotting down some notes. Uh, here's a quote. It was He was jotting down notes on a picture of Yoda. Uh, and here's a quote from the article. It says, Mr. Sun, a risk-taking investor who likened his gut-based strategy of use the force to that of the bat-eared Star Wars Jedi, was visibly excited that his new disciple was pushing for such an ambitious plan. Uh, Mr. Sun, so Masa-san, then proceeded to do some quick back-of-the-napkin math on top of his Yoda picture, and they have this picture uh, mm-hmm. on the in the article. Is it in the book? Is, is it from? Was that from the book, or is it just? I'm not this sure. New, this I read the book, but it, well, it, it was the Wall Street Journal reporter wrote the book, which is why. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, he calculated that WeWork would be worth a tr- ten trillion dollars in a decade. So just, yeah, you know, the bring out the estate. pen, the iPad, a Yoda picture. I mean, this is what un- good underwriting is. The, I mean, yeah, 10% of the real estate market or whatever it is. Yeah, it's easy. And that doesn't take any money to sp- – yeah. I mean, we all know the issues. <laughs> it just – like you got to go look at these notes because it was just like – they had like 100 buildings or something like that. And he's like, I want 10,000 buildings. Yeah. And he's like, like 10K, 10K, 10K in everything. He's like, everything needs to be bigger. 
And then he's like, 10 trillion, that's what you guys could be worth. I mean, the, the, it's a pretty scalable business model. It just takes a lot of money to do, right? You got to buy these buildings. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, 14 months later, uh, the company collapsed and Newman was removed. So uh, he just bought that house in Miami, though. Yeah. No, 40, I mean, I'm sure he's doing fine. Oh, he's doing great. He bought a palace in Miami. So things are looking up for that city. <sighs> I encourage everyone to go watch that documentary. Maybe read the book as well, it sounds like. Uh, I know I sound like a broken record here, but was this the greatest corporate collapse of the last 50 years? So far. No, just joking. Uh, uh, I don't know. Probably. Well, no, 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 no. No, Enron. Definitely Enron. That was. I think they were had a $100 billion market cap. And same oh. with WorldCom, maybe. And Lehman and... Uh, they probably have bigger market caps. Yeah, but, but this is I mean, I guess biggest. other than all right, Enron and WorldCom, I guess uh, I believe they are frauds. But Lehman was more uh, bad decisions. That le- it, it was, wasn't smoke and mirrors. I guess maybe uh, you could call. Yeah, I guess it could say it was. It's just, those are corporate collapses. I don't know. Uh, could you ever invest in SoftBank? I know this is a value investor darling. Yeah, a lot of people have been talking about it. I mean, it's trading at a huge discount to NAV, which would be like the net asset value since a lot of it, SoftBank's a... What? We can't go over everything. We can't go over everything because there's so many different holdings. But if you add everything up and the value that they're who's calcul- trading at... Who's, who's calculating that NAV? Yeah. Well, the, it's is sometimes it other VCs writing up the investments in other rounds. Uh, I mean, uh, they've had a lot of successes. Coupon... Uh, well, DD's kind we of struggled out. Yeah. What were some of their What were some of their collapses? I mean, they they were in Greensill, but the thing is, they're in they're in Cartera. It collapsed. Uh, but you got to expect that with the big risk. I mean, the WeWork stuff is definitely not great. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that I think smart, rightly so. Oh. They're like it's training at a discount to Nav. Okay. Uh, now, they might take risk, but uh, that that's, value that's investor, that value investor in you aside, you have someone. Jotting down ten trillion on a Yoda picture and underwriting that. Yeah, I mean he's man- still the CEO. Man- yeah, management's not for me. Too much risk. Too much. What risk, is the net asset much- value worth if it can disappear tomorrow? Yeah, well, you have to. I think a lot of people who invest in SoftBank would say that you have to expect greater returns for the risk you're taking. So you'd have to expect higher. Like you, you know, you know what I mean. You. Compared yeah. to another, I mean, he's obviously had some winners. Yeah. So compared to other investments, maybe in your portfolio with safer, uh, stabler business models, this would be something that you'd want higher returns on because you're taking that more risk. But you, it's I don't know. Maybe it's a the, home run business for Massa. Yeah. It's it seems like there's not a lot, a lot of singles of here. Yeah. No singles whatsoever. I don't. Yeah, is again. I, I guess I'm just gonna say it again. A lot of risk. A lot of risk. Okay. All right. What's your last story here? Okay. This oh, one yeah. everyone yeah. loves. Uh, I bet. Yeah. No one really probably likes when we talk about cryptocurrencies, but I think this is interesting because it relates to public companies, and we can probably talk about how you can react or think about a public company that you might be invested in getting into cryptocurrencies, which is something that is increasingly happening. So Square, which is a company that. If you're a long-time listener of the show, you know that we used to own our personal accounts, but I just want to be clear here. It's not something we own currently, could own in the future, but just to be clear, we have no skin in the game here. Uh, this was everyone's favorite fintech company. They're getting more and more into cryptocurrencies from CEO Jack Dorsey. Square is, quote, focused on building an open developer platform with the sole goal of making it easy to create non-custodial, permissionless, and decentralized financial services. I'll caveat that with saying that Square is a, they're a centralized entity, so I don't know. But apparently the new unit, which will be what people are calling a Bitcoin DeFi, uh, I'll explain that a bit, but apparently the new unit will include the seller, Cash App, and the recently acquired title businesses. Um, what is DeFi, you might be asking? It broadly means financial transactions that don't rely on centralized authorities like a bank exchange possibly possibly exchange but i don't know how you're doing this without some sort of exchange or like a clearinghouse um again i get confused though because you could argue that the software or whatever you're building it on is 
something centralized. Uh, no, 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 maybe no, I'm no, being no. nitpicky. So it's, it's decentralized with Dorsey in the middle. I so I'm, yeah, I don't get when they say decentralized because at some point something is centralized. Something is. May, again, that could be nitpicky, but I don't know. But, okay, this also comes at the same time that Jackson Palmer, who created Dogecoin as a joke, I'm just saying that because he is someone who understands how these things work. You know, one of the few people, unlike us, that understands the nitty-gritty of a cryptocurrency. Um, he had a tweet thread saying cryptocurrency is built, quote, to amplify the wealth of its proponents and evade taxes, quote, controlled by a powerful cartel of wealthy figures and use a shady marketing to, quote, extract new money from the financially desperate and naive, plus a lot of other things. So the people in the, you know, whatever you think about that aside, speaking more broadly about any stock you might potentially own, how do you weigh the risks and potential when a company makes an investment in cryptocurrency? Oh, well, I don't, I think this is wasted CapEx, Uh, or I guess investment. Expenses, yeah. Just expenses, yeah. It, uh, I don't like it. I don't know. <laughs> I guess, yeah, there is obviously upside. But if you have, if you provide a service or a product that is core to your customers' lives, it doesn't matter what they pay in. Yeah, well, okay. So, so no, no, I'm not talking about your invest- opinion on cryptocurrency. So, what if, say, you hold a company, a stock? And they announce, like Square is, that they're getting into Bitcoin and all that type of stuff. And you're a shareholder of that stock. As an investor, how do you evaluate that? Yeah, I don't think they need to. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't matter what the currency is. Yeah, but you can't control that. How do you think about that for evaluating whether to buy or sell the the stock? Well, depending on the – there's nuance. But depending on the size of the transaction, to me it's a bit of a yellow flag. Yeah, I think it adds uncertainty because it's something that – at least on our end, it's something we don't understand. You know, like if you don't understand that, that adds more risk, uncertainty. You might not know what's going well or not going well. You probably want to up your return expectations because it is adding more risk. I think that's probably a good way to go about it. And there's probably a threshold too where if this company goes full on micro strategy, I mean, you got to get out. Like, you know, there's like a threshold where someone might be investing that's two maybe, to three percent of their money. That's maybe the worst part is it starts small and then everyone says, "Well, if it works out, they're in good hands, and if it doesn't, they you know they've it was minuscule." Yeah. But that's just that's the peak of the iceberg. They head down the rabbit hole. It happens. To, I mean, go look at Michael Saylor. You start with you start small. I don't. It feels like it's like it feels to them as like an addictive drug. Sometimes people get addicted to the cryptocurrency market and they can't stop and it just again as an someone who can't control what a company is doing as an outside investor with not very much money it mm-hmm. just adds uncertainty thing is i know I mean, we know plenty of people that own square we know plenty of people that own paypal that are doing this to me it's a to me it's a yellow flag i guess yeah well I, yeah, it's also like let's say you are a software or services business that's asset light, and you can potentially invest that cash at high rates of return. Why do you need to invest that cash in Bitcoin if you can get good rates of return elsewhere? Yeah, no, yeah, your balance sheet doesn't need to be on it. Yeah. You provide a valuable service. Yeah, uh, th- it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I think, but I think the claim that this is just a customer acquisition tool is out the window now. It's more than that, for sure. I mean, it, it may it may serve that purpose, but obviously, he wants it to be a larger part of the business. Yeah, and that that yeah yeah. I mean, I I've said it twice, I guess, but it adds the uncertainty where, just like with SoftBank, you're going to want to up your return expectations because it seems like the the uncertainty with the downside is going up as well. And the 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 part that irritates me the most is as new information is presented, it's. For Dorsey, it's always been like, how do I get this to fit my existing framework, my yeah. mental framework of understanding it? Like, like think about the. Remember when Musk tweeted the stuff about energy use, and then which may have been just because the China was about to crack down on it. Yeah, coincidence. No, no, that was a coincidence, Ryan. But he know. <laughs> I mean, my concern is like, remember how the, they were like, well, let's have a conference and discuss this. We're going to have a Zoom meeting to try to convince you otherwise. It's like. Just yeah. let people think independently. 
well, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other thing, but... All right, I have no more stories. Yeah, last one. I thought this would be a great way to wrap it up. Earnings season is upon us tomorrow. Netflix, or today, I guess, when you're listening to this, Netflix will report, which I think is kind of, at least for the tech bro circles that we uh, we kind of run in on uh, on Twitter or whatever in the investing Netflix. community. Yeah, well, some people might call it Netflix. But Netflix is always the one that kicks it off because there's so many hot takes, whatever. And then there's the Delta variant news now. And possibly, well, you know, that's hitting full volume. What are your feelings, thoughts heading into this earnings season? Should be a fun one overall, but anything specific? No, I don't know. I mean, what what kind of comps are coming up on here now? Q2. So that was full COVID, right? Yeah, we're hitting full COVID comps, but then there's the summer, like, slight reopen. Definitely going to be some comp, not really necessarily crimes, but people are going to look at comps probably with, you know, the headline numbers can make comps look weird right now. I think there will be – remember how there was a lot of like – last year a lot of people were thinking like what's going to persist, like what's going to be an acceleration of a continued trend versus what's temporary. I think everything's going to feel like a continued trend. All it's right. Being. So I don't think there's been a lot of – I mean maybe we'll get restaurant comps that are absolutely ridiculous you know, because they – I think for Q2 there's a large chunk where they just weren't open, right? Yeah, not sure on that, Last but that, that would make sense. Yeah, the only ones, uh, it seems like consumer discretionary will probably do well. I mean, travel is going to do well. Um, apparel will probably do well. A little recovery mm-hmm. restaurant will probably recover. But within the services? Netflix? I don't know. They've had no the idea. worst library recently of content. It's, it's been, been pretty, me off. yeah, that's, it's, that's anecdotal, but I'll say I agree as well. It's been pretty piss poor. Um, I, I will also... I'll caveat that by saying I haven't churned yet. So congrats. <laughs> yeah, no one – yeah, you, you always say that, but you never churn. Um, but yeah, with Netflix, it's always – Disney Plus, Loki, crushed it. Well done. Oh, really? I, You know what? Marvel, I was, I was a doubter the, to start. Yeah, Marvel's kind of – I don't know. I'm Marvel now, Aren't dude. you too cool? I, like, no, I'm not, I'm not too cool for Marvel. It's just a lot of hours. I mean – it's just a little, Which means a lot of content. I I guess yeah. I mean yeah. It, a lot of them are rewatchable, but I yeah. I guess I don't have any hot earnings takes. Hot earnings, yeah. There's gonna be people Probably. that think it's the end of the world, like always, and there's gonna be people. Well, I really look forward to when like Netflix uh, reports, and then everyone's like, "What could Netflix earnings mean for everyone else?" Oh, that's the Motley Fool articles we're gonna be writing. No, the, uh, but it's uh, no. Well, uh, I hope I hope things happen where companies you like have just a tiny miss and then yeah. the stock drops 10 percent, gives you an opportunity to buy those are what that's what i look forward to potentially happening during earnings season and i love with netflix specifically because it's either up or down five percent because the algo is irrational them. yeah you know if it's down five percent the bears which have been around for a long time are like see we're right and then the next quarter they could be wrong again it's like it's it's like a never-ending cycle with this with this netflix thing especially all right, I think that's going to do it unless you have any more hot earnings takes. Nope. All right. Thank you, Massimo, for coming on the show. Thank you if you stuck around for our uh, fun show notes. Uh, but that is going to do it. Feel free to contact us, uh, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM us if you're on Twitter. It's at chitchatmoney. We, Links will be in the show notes if you need them. That's right. And we are not financial advisors. So anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or a recommendation. We are, however, general partners at RH Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.